This is the 301st in the series of lectures sponsored by the Rare Book School Book Arts Press. It was given Tuesday, the 17th of July, 1990, by Paul Oscar Christeller and was entitled In Search of Medieval and Renaissance Manuscripts. Good evening. Tonight is a superior example of false billing. This is not the 300th lecture of the Book Arts Press. This is the 301st lecture of the Book Arts Press. I counted wrong. <laughs> but then the Christian era didn't begin with the birth of Christ either, but nearly. The 300th lecture was given yesterday by Felix Oyens in celebration of the first 300 lectures of the Book Arts Press Lecture Series, I am very pleased to bring you Paul Christeller. Ladies and gentlemen, I wish to thank uh, Mr. Ballinger, my old friend, for having invited me again to speak before this audience. And I'm touched by the large attendance and slightly embarrassed because uh, some of you uh, must have heard a similar lecture before this. All I can say is that there are, of course, always some improvised details and I shall try to treat you at least to one episode which happened within the last few days in this library. <laughs> in talking to an audience of librarians and bibliophiles about my work, and especially about my Ita Italicum, of which, by the way, the uh, fourth volume appeared last year, the fifth volume is in second proofs, and the sixth and last volume is typed and copy edited, waiting to be sent to the press. Mm, I'm afraid my work, I must begin with a rather embarrassing admission. I'm not a professional bibliographer or bibliophile. And I'm afraid my work has many shortcomings due to this fact. Most of my work belongs to what is called enumerative bibliography, which I understand is considered among the true experts as the least respected variety. <laughs> my late friend Kurt Bühler once made such a remark. I began my career as a student of philosophy and its history and have remained to this day at least a historian of thought, of ideas, or of learning, or to put it in more fashionable terms of intraconceptual space. <laughs> Interconceptual space. I did in my youth receive additional training in medieval history and in classical philology, including such auxiliary disciplines as diplomatics, paleography, and textual criticism. And I have also tried to make good use of those skills in my work. I remember telling a great classical scholar that it was my intention to apply the tested methods of classical philology to the neglected and somewhat backward field of Renaissance studies, saying that the methods of philology were invented and uh, he rebuked me by saying that the methods of philology were invented for the priceless treasures of ancient literature and history and would be wasted on the less important or dignified remnants of later periods. With due respect for my senior colleague, I was undisturbed by his remark and tried to continue my program. I've always been a very stubborn person, so I just was undisturbed. 
In the course of it, I became a manuscript scholar and a bibliographer gradually and, as it were, malgré moi. Having written my thesis on Plotinus, I decided back in 1931 to concentrate on another influential Platonist, Marsilio Ficino. I soon came to realize that there was a large number of manuscripts which contained his writings and those of his contemporaries, which had not been adequately studied, and which supplied significant additions to their work, as previously known and published. I collected my findings on Ficino in my Supplementum Ficinianum, which tried to collect all texts and documents not present in the standard Basel edition of his works of 1576. And during my stay in Italy, I persuaded Giovanni Gentile and the publisher Leo Olschke to start a series of humanist text editions that were prepared and eventually published by younger Italian scholars. The series is still active, and one volume appeared this year. I hope there will at least be two more. Beginning in 1933, I visited many Italian libraries, went through their catalogues and inventories, and kept extensive notebooks and files, which I took with me when I moved to America in 1939. After the war, shortly after the war, I showed them to the late Fritz Saxel, and we agreed that my material, properly arranged and supplemented, should be published by the Warburg Institute under the title Ita Italicum, a stylish title reminiscent of 18th rather than 19th, let alone 20th century scholarship, which I do not mind, because in my field some of the best contributions date back to the 18th century. To complete the material, lengthy trips to Italy and to other European countries, as well as in the United States, were needed. The work also became more complex because my scholarly interests were broadened to include not only humanism and Platonism, but also Aristotelianism and the history of learning and of the sciences that were related to humanism and Aristotelianism, such as rhetoric and medicine. Gradually, I also got involved in another project called Catalogus Translationum et Commentariorum, which is still continuing, an attempted critical list of Latin translations of Greek authors and of Latin commentaries on both Greek and Latin authors in order to assess the availability and influence of each classical author and text and to get rid of shabby uh, generalizations which still are handed down in textbooks and manuals. And as far as this material is collected, it is very instructive. Unfortunately, I will not see the project to be finished, but I must say the eater, among other functions, has also served this one to act as a feeder for the catalogus, of which now the seventh volume is in press. The eater was conceived not as a catalog, but as a finding list, as the title says. In order to define the project and to carry it out, many obstacles had to be overcome. And I don't know, they probably have not been completely overcome, as my daily experience teaches me. Some of these obstacles were due to prevalent misconceptions that made the task appear unfeasible or even unnecessary. One foundation, which for courtesy's sake I will not identify by name today, <laughs> uh, refused to support the project because it was a kind of work which should have been undertaken in the last century. <laughs> 
the fact that it had not been done and that it could not have been done in the last century was not considered a valid argument, probably because the task did not seem to be worthwhile. Some people were convinced that nothing new could be found, or at least nothing that was important. A noted scholar, also better left unmentioned by name, stated in public that only published texts were important enough to be quoted or studied or even listed. This notion was convenient for the historian who was relieved of the task of citing manuscripts, which is a very uncomfortable task, as I can stay, confirm from experience. It also paradoxically conveyed a magic power on the manuscript scholar who could publish an interesting text for the first time and thus transform something intrinsically unimportant into something admittedly important. <laughs> Many other historians were and still are convinced that manuscripts written after the invention of printing were always copied from editions and therefore useless. I heard this view defended recently by a very competent younger scholar. And I can assure you that his statement is true in some instances, but should not be generalized. Of the uh, many 15th century script, uh, manuscripts containing writings of Ficino, which I have used, I remember only one that was clearly copied from a printed edition for specific reasons. It is the exception rather than the rule. Moreover, classical and medieval scholars who dominated the fields of philology and paleography uh, until at the time when I started my work were interested only in early manuscripts. As a result, late manuscripts were neglected by most philologists and even by paleographers. I remember when I first taught a paleography sem a seminar in this university, I used an older, very competent French handbook, which stopped with Gothic script and did not have one page or one plate dealing with manuscripts of the late 14th, 15th, or 16th century. That has since changed. As a result, late manuscripts were neglected. These late manuscripts were also of limited interest to the literary historians who pursued the study of the Renaissance period. They were concerned with poetry and narrative prose in the standard vernacular literatures and were not concerned with the vast number of manuscripts written in Latin dealing with learned subjects or even in vernacular manuscripts written in dialects different from from accepted purest standards. When I look, I have seen many manuscripts in Italian, and many of them were, as it were, discriminated against because they were not in the Tuscan language of the great century, the 14th, but even Florentine texts of the 15th century were despised because the language had varied from that of the uh, 14th, which was taken as a standard, and worst if the manuscripts were written in other dialects, such as Venetian or Lombard or Neapolitan, which also contained very interesting material. All this was put aside. On the other hand, a scholar who made proper use of the manuscripts pertinent to his work was confronted with great practical difficulties. Most of the available printed catalogues of manuscript collections were rare, inaccurate, incomplete, badly arranged, or badly indexed. Many collections had only handwritten inventories that were either inadequate or accessible only on the spot and sometimes with difficulties. I remember in great collections, like the Ambrosiana or the Marciana in Venice, the best inventories were kept 
in the curator's room. And I had to be informed by local scholars of their existence before being able to persuade the curator to allow me to see them and to read them. Both inventories have since been published in facsimile. Entire manuscript collections were practically unknown outside their immediate neighborhood. And I remember cases where I was told that manuscripts were in this or this place nobody had ever heard from. I even think in one case it was a hotel doorman who called my attention to a manuscript collection <laughs> that had not been mentioned anywhere. <laughs> even the major libraries had special holdings known only to the responsible librarians. I remember a distinguished librarian of the Biblioteca Nazionale in Florence pulling, pulling out of her desk the uh, inventory of a special collection. And it was dis its existence was disclosed to me about 20 years after I had started working in the library. And it turned out to contain manuscripts by Ficino and Poliziano that nobody knew about. It was quite hard to keep up with recent acquisitions. It still is. Fortunately, some of the major libraries still buy manuscripts. And you cannot uh, repeat your tours every year in order to uh, be uh, familiar with their acquisitions. This is true of Paris and London, and also of Florence and Rome, including the Vatican, and uh, of many American collections. Individual manuscripts and entire collections did not belong to libraries only, but were attached to archives, museums, and learned societies. A sizable number of <coughs> manuscripts, though I must disappoint you, not as large a percentage as a layman or the bookseller is inclined to believe, belongs to private collectors or to dealers who often do not allow scholars to see them or to cite them after they have seen them. These manuscripts often change hands disappear from sight and resurface only after a long time, if at all. I shall not go into the difficulties we have in, in obtaining microfilms or photostats, even from public collections that are readable or in receiving permission to cite, edit, or reproduce them. This is a long story by itself. There are two types of manuscripts that pose special difficulties even after we have succeeded in seeing them on the spot or in good reproductions. Anonymous or pseudonymous manuscripts and miscellaneous manuscripts. The occurrence of anonymous text is so frequent that I'm tempted to call the Magister Anonymous the most prolific and the most versatile author of world literature. Even if we cannot identify him, we can pin him down in each instance in terms of his time, place, and subject matter. The only secure method of identifying an author is, of course, a comparison with another manuscript or with an edition that discloses his name. And for this purpose, the catalogs of incipits are of the greatest help. Though they are never complete for any subject, though there are many subjects for which they do not exist. And I like to add, they are not always 100% reliable either. False attributions often reflect conventions of long standing for which a knowledge of the specialized literature is needed. There are cases where false attributions can be discovered and corrected by a study of the manuscript and printed tradition of the text. I remember one case, but I must say, although I thought my proof was airtight, I did not succeed in convincing some of the leading scholars in the field. Again, name withheld. Uh, 
I was, I noticed that Marsiglio Ficino translated um, part, a large part of the so-called Hermetic Corpus, entitled by him Pimander. It had a wide distribution in manuscripts and in early editions. I noticed in scanning them that none of these manuscripts and early editions contained a kind of commentary that is printed with the text in Ficino's collected writings in the 16th century. So I asked myself the question, where does this commentary come from? If it's not in the contemporary manuscripts on the first editions, there arises a doubt that he is not the author. After, to leave out some details, after some efforts, I discovered a Paris edition of 1505 in which the well-known French scholar Jacques Lefebvre de Taples, on whom our friend and colleague Jean Rice has done basic work, that he has a preface in which he discloses that he wrote the commentary and added it to his edition of Ficino's translation. The later editions don't repeat the preface. I repeated it and considered it, as I say, as an airtight proof that the author of the commentary is by Lefebvre and not by Ficino, although printed in Ficino's works. Well, I was not able to convince everybody, but I have not been shaken in my firm conviction that this is proven and as tightly proven as is possible in our field of investigation. The irony is that in modern scholarly discussions, some scholars have cited this commentary, which I proved to be apocryphal, as a main source for proving that Ficino was orthodox in his theological beliefs. The trouble is, I mean, I'm convinced that to some extent he was orthodox, but this particular text is not very convincing because Lefebvre is not generally considered particularly orthodox. So there is some irony in this. It gave rise to a scholarly controversy in which, fortunately, I was not directly involved. Two historical texts were attributed until recently on the basis of the old Phillips catalog to a certain Hercules Brunos. From the name you assume an Italian humanist of the 15th or 16th century. Well, the manuscript recently surfaced at the University of Wisconsin library. It became apparent from a collation of the texts that the two main texts are well-known works by Pier Candido de Cembrio. And the name Hercules Brunos merely appears in the margin in an 18th century note. So he must be considered a ghost. Another case, very amusing, more recent experience. A few years, uh, there was a collection of verse against the Turks dedicated to Pope Pius II and traditionally attributed to a not too well-known humanist called Petrus Maximus Collatius. A few years ago, a young Italian scholar dedicated an article on this subject, uh, in, uh, gave it to a festival for my friend Alessandro Perosa, in which basing himself on a miscellaneous manuscript of the 15th century in Parma, tried to prove that the real author of this text was somebody else, a very obscure local scholar from I never heard. To my surprise, I found in the Feltrinelli collection 
at the Morgan Library a neat contemporary copy of the text with the coat of arms of, the, of a Piccolomini Pope, Pius II. Now, there you have the evidence. We have the dedication copy. The uh, other attribution has to be dismissed. Special difficulties are offered by all miscellaneous manuscripts, that is, by manuscripts which contain several texts by different authors. These manuscripts are often insufficiently analyzed in catalogs or inventories, and it is necessary to inspect them. We want to know their entire content. I have had many instances where even respectable catalogs list only the first text in the miscellaneous manuscript and completely skip mention of all the other texts. Sometimes you recognize it because the text mentioned is too short for the number of folios constituting the manuscript. That alone prompt me to look at it. In one instance, in the distinguished chapter library in Verona, I found an inventory entry with a nice title, Un mazzo di fiori, a bunch of flowers. That's all. Well, it aroused my curiosity. And I sent for the manuscript, and sure enough, it contained a whole collection of Italian vernacular texts of the 15th century, of which we know many copies, including several texts by Marcio Ficino, also texts well known from other manuscripts. And this manuscript reached my attention too late to be used for my edition. But of course, it contributes to the um, a diffusion of the work. So there are all kinds of tricks. The analysis of such manuscripts often yields additional text copies of important texts, and sometimes even entirely new texts. Entirely new texts appear back in the miscellaneous manuscript of which the catalogs mention only the first title. In working with such manuscripts, I have arrived at a rule which has often been helpful to me and which has been accepted by many colleagues. Not by all, I must confess. The place and date of a miscellaneous manuscript must be determined on the basis of the rarest texts which it contains, provided that they are written by the same hand as the other pieces preceding or following them. Of course, you see, a widely diffused text may get anywhere into a collection, but what is unique to this particular manuscript is likely to be close to the uh, copyist or first owner of the manuscript. I hope it makes sense, at least to you, not to all my colleagues. One of the greatest difficulties a scholar has to deal with is the identification of the valid shelf mark by which a manuscript should be cited. Many scholars dismiss this as unimportant. But without its valid shelf mark, a manuscript cannot be found, just as a person cannot be found unless we know his or her name and address. The scholarly literature is full of garbled or incomplete shelf marks. And I am afraid I also have occasionally sinned along this line. To determine the correct shelf mark of a manuscript, we should never rely on any scholarly article or edition, <laughs> but only on the catalogs and inventories of a given collection and on the testimony of its librarians. I've written, I have written many letters to librarians to verify shelf marks, and I go by that. You find editions of Virgil by distinguished philologists which cite one of the main manuscripts as Codex Parisinus, not realizing that there are about 40 Virgil manuscripts in Paris in the Bibliothèque Nationale alone. They take for granted that what would single out 
the one that is best known because it's the oldest, but we need, need a number. I, I have, uh, I, here comes the story which happened to me a few days ago. I wanted to trace the history of an obscure late ancient text a Neoplatonic philosopher called Priscianus Ludus, Priscian the Ludian, not to be confused with the grammarian Priscian, of which he was an approximate contemporary. I knew the Greek text was lost, and what we have also in modern editions is only a Latin translation of obscure origin. After some efforts, I found an edition in a French periodical of the mid-19th century by Tichera, in which he says at the beginning the text is unpublished and that he follows a manuscript of Saint-Germain. Well, I said, I must find the manuscript of Saint-Germain, which I knew, uh, uh, constitutes a part of the so-called Nouveau Fonds Latin of the Bibliothèque Nationale. Unfortunately, uh, there is a collection of Saint-Germain manuscripts runs to about 2,000 or more. We have no printed index of this collection. We have a serial summary listing by De Lille in the Bibliothèque de l'École des Chartes, and I somewhat shuddered at the thought that I have to scan four installments of the Bibliothèque de l'École des Chartes, scanning the descriptions of two or three thousand manuscripts until I find the right one. Then I had the bright idea and remembered that there is such a thing, thanks to my friend Edward Krantz, which is called a microfilm corpus of unpublished inventories of Latin manuscript books. And I remember having persuaded him to include and persuaded librarians in Paris to include in this corpus a handwritten alphabetical index of the Nouveau Fonds Latin. Well, with some effort, I found our microfilm. I looked it up. Sure enough, I found Priscianus Ludus mixed up with the grammarian Christian. But the manuscript of the Solutiones at Cosrem appeared in its due place, and I got the number. After I got the number, I got one, went back to the Bibliothèque de l'École des Chartes and saw the description. And when I saw the description, it was a miscellaneous manuscript. And Kishirah, in his article, it said that he is inclined to attribute the translation to John Scoglos Eriogena, the famous Irish scholar of the late 8th and early 9th, um, late, uh, late 8th and early 9th century. And when I saw it, the, uh, the date, not only the date of the manuscript confirms it, but in this miscellaneous manuscript, this text is preceded by another text that belongs to John Scotus. So we have two strong arguments in his favor. Then I found out that there was a more recent critical edition of the same text done in a German series in the 1880s by a distinguished British scholar called Bywater. Bywater gives the text, and at the beginning he lists the manuscripts. He lists Parisi Codex Parisinus, that's all. In the meantime, I have found out which one it is. Codex Cotton, British Library. Codex Harley, British Library. Codex Mantuanus, that's all. Well, I used our print, we fortunately have the printed catalogs of the Cotton and Harley collection, and I managed to find the shelf marks. So I can cite them, both in the ETA and in my article. Codex Mantuanus, I was unable to identify and sent off a letter 
to the librarian in Mantua and hope I'm getting a reply. See, that's the kind of shelf mark problem we are sometimes confronted with. And I sometimes, this is one of the points where I believe that some classical scholars could learn some lessons from medievalists and Renaissance scholars when it comes to identifying the sources of the texts which they edit or cite. Each library has its own shelf mark system. And in order to understand it, we must, as a rule, have worked on the spot for at least one day. And, and, and when I go for the first time to a, to a library, I usually ask to see the director and have him explain to me his shelf mark system so that I can quote the manuscripts correctly. This was always very valuable. An experienced scholar may often recognize a shelf mark as incomplete or wrong. A further complication arises because many libraries in the past, and some even recently, have changed their shelf marks, sometimes without keeping a concordance. The result is that a special search is needed if we wish to identify a manuscript known to us only from older literature by its former shelf mark. I had some very curious experiences along this line to identify the correct shelf mark of a manuscript cited by the shelf marks it had sometimes in the 18th century. And sometimes the old shelf marks also mistaken, and that makes it even more difficult to find the new one. When there was this famous scandal about the, um, the uh, Leonardo manuscripts in, in Madrid that had disappeared, new papers, newspapers were full of stories about their discovery, uh, most of which were wrong. I and some colleagues made special investigations on the spot. Both the credit given to the discovery and the method of the discovery were misrepresented. What actually happened is that an old shelf mark was mistaken in some printed and handwritten inventories. And then we have a concordance from old to new shelf marks, and the manuscript, the modern shelf mark corresponding to the wrong old shelf mark, of course, didn't contain what we were looking for. What actually happened is that my, my late friend, one of the experienced librarians, had the bright idea to scan all the manuscripts that had a similar old shelf mark and then collate their modern equivalent. And in this way he found the manuscripts because the inventory gave as the old shelf mark, I think it was something like A19 and A20 and it should have been A119 and A120. As soon as that was qualified, the manuscripts were there. And this disposes and I have seen them myself. And this disposes of all the um, false and inconsistent stories uh, to which the newspapers and magazines treated us for half a year in succession, giving a credit to a person who gave inconsistent interviews and whose merit uh, is dubious in the discovery. The situation of manuscript research especially for the Renaissance period, has notably improved in recent decades. Traveling and microfilming have become easier, and many late manuscripts have attracted the interest of collectors and of art historians, especially for their illuminations and their bindings. The history of libraries has become a subject of great interest. It has led to the reconstruction of famous old libraries, 
and to the study of the provenance of many extant manuscripts and of their owners, often on the basis of coats of arms, if not of ownership notes. I mean, I admit that heraldry is a useful auxiliary discipline for the study of manuscripts. I'm afraid I'm not very advanced in it and rely on this as on other matters on the, uh, the uh, help of special experienced specialists. I still have an important Ficino manuscript which contains a coat of arms which I have been unable to identify after 50 years. I hope somebody will do better. A whole school of paleographers has been successfully at work to study the origin and history of the main types of humanist script, Roman and cursive or italic, to identify the hands of individual scribes who signed at least some of their manuscripts, and to classify unsigned manuscripts, at least by towns or regions, and by periods no longer than a quarter of a century. I remember the time the best you could do about an unsigned manuscript was to establish the country and the century. Now you can do better. I have had to learn a lot from these scholars, including Albinia de la Baer, because I have no sharp eye for individual copies. Moreover, the origin of the humanist Roman hand has been traced to Poggio, who imitated the Caroline minuscule, which he took for ancient Roman. So you have here pseudo-classical influence in uh, paleography. Whereas humanist cursive, or italic, has been derived from Poggio's friend Niccolo Nicoli. It is now generally recognized what I had known from experience for a long time, that the humanist cursive originated and flourished as a book hand, not as a chancery hand, as previously believed. Since a descendant of it in the 16th century has, was known as Cancelleresca, a fact that probably caused the wrong view of its origin, we must now ask the other way around, how the cursive book hand came to enter the chanceries and when. Obviously, humanist chancellors were responsible for this development, but the date and circumstances are still largely unexplored, and I have seen more than one wrong statement on this subject. A very renowned paleographer, again, I prefer not to mention his name, made a big blunder by misdating a Vatican manuscript by 60 years, I think, wrongly predating it by 60 years, and then drawing wrong conclusions about the origin of the uh, cursive chancery hand from this mistake. Another recent development is the progress of codicology, which has greatly improved the technique of providing a full external description of a manuscript. I'm not an expert in this area, as my present colleague, Professor de Rollet, is. I'm afraid the eater is rather deficient from, the point of, from this point of view. I have, I mean, my excuse is that if I had wanted to give a full codicological description of each manuscript mentioned, I would not have finished my work. Two or three lifetimes would not have been enough. I have two reservations about codicology. The method requires that a very long time be spent on the description of an individual manuscript. And thus, it slows down the process of cataloging by which thousands of undescribed specimens would become better known. What is worse, in emphasizing the external description of manuscripts, the codicologists pay little or no attention to what for me is the core of manuscript research, the textual content of a manuscript. I know many instances where a careful codicological description of a manuscript fails to tell me what its textual content is. I remember even my friend Saxel analyzed two Vatican manuscripts for their 
decoration and did not mention the text that was contained. <laughs> text that happened to interest me very much. In my eater, I have concentrated on the table of contents of the manuscripts listed. Now, I have focused on those texts that are either in Latin or of philosophical, scientific, or scholarly content. My criteria of selection have been admittedly fluid and even arbitrary. I do not pretend to give a catalog. I had no time to see all pertinent manuscripts or to identify all anonymous texts. Though I often give insipids and hope they will enable other specialists to identify many of the texts which I left anonymous. In other words, I do not offer a definitive description of the manuscript, but rather some raw data, as one of my reviewers once stated, and I owe much to the information supplied by other scholars and to the active cooperation of many librarians. Let me briefly describe the main stages of my search. We must start with printed indexes. And we now have another microfilm corpus by Kranz of the indexes of printed catalogs, which facilitates this task. Proceed from there to handwritten indexes and to circular inquiries. A scholar who wishes to find manuscripts of only one text or author may very well stop at this stage. If we wish to explore entire subjects, themes, or periods, and to catch pertinent authors or texts which we did not even know to exist, we must proceed to another method which is much more laborious, which I learned many decades ago from such scholars as Giovanni Mercati and Ludwig Bertolotti. We must actually scan, if not read, all interesting catalogs and inventories from cover to cover. I'll refer again to Kranz's microphone corpus of inventories, which facilitates the task because it allows us to scan many inventories right here or at the Library of Congress instead of traveling from library to library. <coughs> if the catalog or inventory description seems unclear or incomplete or especially exciting, we must inspect the manuscript itself. As I said before, it would have been impossible for me to see all pertinent or potentially interesting manuscripts but I did try to see as many interesting manuscripts as possible. A direct inspection of a manuscript may merely confirm the printed or unprinted description from which we started. This is not to be despised, because you do not always trust a scholar's report, and if you confirm it by direct examination, you feel to be on firmer ground because there are many cases in which such descriptions are incomplete or actually wrong. Yet the direct inspection of a manuscript may yield results which we could never have obtained from the previous descriptions. A miscellaneous manuscript may contain texts not mentioned in the catalog or inventory, as I said before. An anonymous or pseudonymous text may be identified on site when we see the manuscript and recognize an old acquaintance. Finally, there may be some features which not even a microfilm, but only a direct inspection of the manuscript would disclose. The medical commentaries of Magister Bartolomeus in a manuscript in Winchester College were mentioned in print, though with a misleading title, as early as 1697 but it was only the green initials that appear in the manuscript when I looked at it, which disclosed its early age and the identity of the author with Bartolomeus of Salerno, which then led to interesting conclusions about the history and method of the school of Salerno. I'd like to add 
No green initials were used after 1200, and no medical author called Bartholomaeus appears before 1200 except the Salernitan master. The commentary of Archimatheus on Ioannitius survives mainly in a manuscript in Trier, but its red title could not be deciphered on the microfilm which I received, but only in the manuscript itself, which disclosed to me that it was actually gloss or commentary on Ioannitius. I hadn't been sure about that from the microfilm. The results which you may expect from our search vary in their character as well as in their significance. In many cases, we may find additional manuscripts for texts which had been known to us before. Even when these additional manuscripts have no special value for the text, their mere existence is important for the statistics of their diffusion. We deal in most instances with manuscript books copied for libraries, not with desk copies. And a text that survives in four or five neatly written copies must be considered as published according to the practice of the period. The text that survives in dozens or hundreds of manuscript copies was clearly a bestseller. This is true of many textbooks used in schools and universities, but also of many works of Renaissance humanists, and especially of Leonardo Bruni. In the case of one of Bruni's works, it is not only the mere number of manuscripts that shows this influence, but also the place and date of their origin and the social and professional status of their scribes and first owners. The, uh, uh, for this particular text, that is his translation of the pseudo-Aristotelian economics, Hans Baron had listed, I think, 10 manuscripts. Bertalot had added five. When uh, Professor Sudek made a more comprehensive list of using my eater in its not yet published state, he ended up with over 200 copies. That itself tells the story. Even more interesting are the cases where we find additional manuscripts of a known text that offer good textual variants, different redactions, unknown prefaces, or other new data concerning its genesis or chronology. In the case of Ficino, Marcel identified a Vatican manuscript of the De Amore as an autograph copied for Giovanni Cavalcanti, whereas other manuscripts contain different prefaces or dedications. And a manuscript in Oxford contains autograph marginal editions. Thus it becomes possible to establish the history of the text, at least for some passages. We know that Ficino dedicated his translation of ten platonic dialogues to Cosimo dei Medici, before his death. But it was a manuscript in Oxford, subsequently confirmed by fragments in Parma and Paris, that yielded a previously unknown preface to Cosimo, told us which dialogues were translated for him, and incidentally proved that the strange sequence of Plato's works found in all manuscripts and editions of Ficino and different from their sequence in the Greek manuscripts and editions reflects the chronological sequence in which Ficino completed his translation. The Oxford manuscript was written by several different scribes among whom the choirs were distributed, evidently in order to speed up the copying and to present the manuscript in time to the dying Cosimo in 1464. The most gratifying results of manuscript research occur rather rarely. It is when we come upon texts that are completely new and previously unknown. In order to recognize them as new, we must know the state of scholarship on the subject. It is not written on the spine or title page of a manuscript that its content is new or unique. The scholarly announcement of a new text should be recognized as a real discovery, though the manuscript had been previously described in an inventory, or even in a printed catalog, because a real discovery consists not in copying a title, but in, a fitting, in fitting the new material into the historical context to which it belongs. 
Of course, the importance of new and previously unknown texts varies from case to case. Not every new text deserves to be collated, let alone to be published. In many instances, it is sufficient if the existence of the new text is recorded so that they may be cited or consulted when necessary. The mere existence of a manuscript text, even if unpublished or unstudied, is often sufficient to refute a prevalent opinion, whether conventional or fashionable. I want to make it clear when I often oppose fashionable views because they're wrong, I'm not favoring conventional views that may be equally wrong. For decades, Renaissance scholars had argued that Renaissance poetics presupposed the knowledge of Aristotle's poetics, and that hence no treatise on poetics could have been written in the 15th century, because the study of Aristotle's poetics culminates in the 16th century. This view must now be abandoned, or at least modified, after the poetics of Bartholomeus Fomtius, which is based on Horace and makes no use of Aristotle, has been published. Also, the poetics of Francesco Patrizzi, most of which was recently published for the first time, is thoroughly Platonist and anti-Aristotelian, and showed that Renaissance poetics was not completely dominated by Aristotle, even in the 16th century, let alone by, as my late friend Weinberg claims, by the Chicago interpretation of Aristotle's poetics. If we, wish to, if we wish to assess the impact of recent manuscript research on our general knowledge and understanding of the Renaissance and of its ancient and medieval sources, we may claim that there has been a significant change, though the basic core of what had been known for a long time has by no means been demolished. I believe historical scholarship to be a continuous and cumulative enterprise to which each scholar and each generation contributes as much as possible. I have no respect for the widespread current tendency to read and cite only the books and articles published during the last five or ten years, to rely on translations and secondary accounts, to repeat well-known facts and opinions in a fashionable terminology, or to formulate pretentious general theories that may be refuted by one single piece of evidence and to protect them with a sophistic and irresponsible argument that evidence does not matter. Aside from these, oh, you read that frequently. These are <coughs> aberrations, <coughs> which I hope will pass. I should like to sum up our results along the following lines. For many major humanist authors, the wide diffusion of their works has been documented, and a more or less extensive or important body of new texts has been added to their oeuvre. In knowledge of the full range of their literary production defies any attempt to reduce their work to only to moral or political philosophy to rhetoric or poetry, to classical scholarship or historiography alone. It is a peculiar combination of them all which has no equivalent in the Middle Ages or in modern times. For the Renaissance, Platonist is for humanism. For the Renaissance, Platonists, and especially for Ficino and his circle, we now have critical editions for some of their major works and others are in preparation. My own attempts to publish and study his previously unknown writings have led to a few clarifications. His early writings prove that he had a scholastic as well as a humanist training. And his mature thought, nourished by medieval and neoplatonic metaphysics, is not reducible to earlier humanism in its typical features, although it presupposes it. For Pico, we have had a series of good editions and the whole body of his Latin poems has come to light. 
Aside from humanism and Platonism, the professional tradition of the Aristotelian philosophers, closely tied to the universities, has received much greater attention. The logician Paul of Venice and his predecessor Peter of Mantua are being studied and edited, and although they and their predecessors were influenced by medieval English predecessors, their important place within the context of Renaissance learning should not be neglected. The greatest and best-known Renaissance Aristotelian, Pomponazzi, has received new critical editions, and the study of his lecture notes has made progress. Other important members of the school continue to be studied. For the leading philosophers of nature, Bernardino Telesio, Francesco Patrizzi, Giordano Bruno, we have numerous studies and also new texts. A similar picture may be drawn if we look at the study of humanism and Renaissance outside of Italy, for example, at the flourishing scholarship on Erasmus, Moore, and Boudet. Apart from these well-known writers and thinkers, we must also pay attention to a large body of literature, much of it unpublished. It is due to less-known authors that fills many gaps in our knowledge of the literature, thought, learning of the period. There is a large body of Neo-Latin poetry that was produced in England as well as in Italy and that has received insufficient attention. A collection of Latin poems written for the Elector Palatine Frederick and his bride Elizabeth Stuart, one of them by George Herbert, found its way into the Vatican Library and has been published but recently. There's a large body of Latin letters, speeches, dialogues, never read and hardly worth publishing, which helps to complete the literary and intellectual map of the period. There are numerous Latin translations from the Greek numerous commentaries on classical Greek and Latin authors, which are now being studied by an international group of scholars, which will continue to throw light on the history of classical scholarship and on the influence of individual ancient authors and writings. So, for example, I found but recently, as it were, by serendipity, a lengthy commentary on Valerius Maximus by Petrarch's associate Giovanni da Ravenna, which had been mentioned by 18th century scholars, but had been considered lost. It surfaced when I looked at a manuscript in the Museo Correa in Venice, where the card index gave Valerius Maximus, but did not mention the fact that it contained a lengthy commentary. I had to have the book before myself. It contained everything, also a long note about the composition of the commentary. As a result of this project, the relation between humanist and medieval translators and commentators of classical texts is thus being clarified in their similarities and differences in their understanding of classical antiquity. For the 15th century itself, a surprisingly large vernacular literature has come to light, partly in various Italian dialects and partly in a Tuscan language despised by the purists of the 16th and later centuries. And some of this literature was written by well-known humanists. This should put to rest the old legend, still repeated, that the humanists tried to abolish the vernacular. We have also learned a lot about the medieval antecedents of both Renaissance humanism and Aristotelianism. It has become quite clear that there was a continuity of genre, though not of style or knowledge, between the humanist commentators of the Latin classics and the medieval grammarians, between the humanist letters and speeches and those of the medieval dictatores, and between the activities of the humanists as teachers and chancellors and those of their predecessors. The close alliance between Aristotelian philosophy and medicine, characteristic of, Ita of the Italian tradition, down to the 17th century, and quite different from the northern tendency to ally philosophy with theology, may be traced back to the beginnings of the Italian universities, from Padua via Bologna back to Salerno. We now know that some famous Salerno masters of the 12th century lectured and wrote on some of the same standard texts of theoretical medicine that were in use for centuries to come, that they had a remarkable philosophical and literary background. 
We also know that the early Tuscan poets around Dante were in direct contact with an Aristotelian philosopher at Bologna who dedicated one of his treatises to Guido Cavalcanti. The purpose of my edict, whatever its gaps and mistakes may be, has been to serve as a tool or guide for this kind of research. It is for the study or publication of unpublished texts that may be of interest for a variety of reasons, or for such cooperative enterprises as catalogus. It is a kind of work that should be and is being continued by many competent younger scholars. We need many more critical editions of major authors, more data for the diffusion of their works, and more studies and descriptions for the works of minor authors, and for such groups of writings by different authors that deal with the same themes, belong to the same literary genre, or contribute to the same field. I hope this work will continue for a long time and to receive the necessary encouragement and support in spite of the current decline in education and training, especially in Latin and other languages, including English, of the waning public interest in anything other than contemporary or political subjects. And in spite of many academic fashions, hostile to serious scholarship, and unwilling to submit their favorite tenets political, ideological, or otherwise, to the test of solid evidence. I also hope that the continuing effort of cataloging manuscripts and also early editions will bring us closer to a bibliothèque imaginaire, that is, to a complete collection of Renaissance texts in manuscripts and in editions, widely scattered in their location, but accessible everywhere to the interested scholar through bibliographies and computer printouts, but also through microfilms and photostats. Thank you. another room that contains the overflow for this lecture and as you if you turn behind you a substantial number of people in the hallway there are about 150 people here which I believe is more than we've ever had at a book arts press lecture before down the hall in both directions are wine and cheese and other potables at the other end in room 502 the book arts press the same. There are two exhibitions on the hallway which I invite you to take a look at. One, starting at this end, talking about the development of Book Arts Press posters, and one starting just outside here, dealing with the various programs of the School of Library Service having to do with rare books. I would estimate that about a third of you will find your pictures on the wall. <laughs> or posters advertising lectures which you have given here in the past together with my critical commentary on them by way of incentive. Thank you all for coming. Please say hello to our speaker in the hallway. <laughs> 